So in the previous session, we have already read what we should do. If we get bored, including the lectures, so no more blames. If we feel, we can plunge into the infinite. What? Uh, how much more easier yoga can get? But we end up only complaining about life or running away from things. When we speak about this search, we all start with an idea of the divine. And this search has two aspects. One, a positive one, where we begin with some idea of the divine. And the second, a negative one. And both complement each other. One of the signs that we are getting ready for the divine is that life as it is, no more appeals to us. The mother says, speaks about it. She says, it seems like a prison, as if we are uh, somehow, there is something from which we want to come out. As long as life appears wonderful, happy, just as it is, world, ourself, we are very satisfied with life, things. We are not really ready for the seeking because we are happy with the frame but the divine goes beyond all frames. So we spoke last in the last session about the ordinary life and then the second layer where we have the religious, social, ethical, moral life and this second layer is a life which creates certain frames and these frames are our comfort zones through which we navigate through life. Actually, life navigates itself, but we want to be in control of the steering and we believe that we are navigating. But there is something else which is much vaster, carrying us. And uh, I'm reminded of a little story, uh, how it works. You know, two straws were floating on an ocean, led by the ocean waves. So one straw tells another, you know, you are not rightly aligned. He says, why? What do you mean? He says, you know, if you put yourself in this way, uh, you will help the ocean to go better. But instead you have put yourself a little bit this way and therefore you are not helping the ocean. So they were thus debating while the ocean is carrying both of them in its massive waves. So we are actually led by something much deeper than what we imagine. And unfortunately, because of the mind, we carry the burden of our own life and we have this need to fix frames. Otherwise, we get very disoriented. So we fix frames of life and they are very helpful at a point of time. But the very same frames begin to come in our way when we seek the divine. Because the divine whom we seek is not confined to any frame, he is not confined to any book, he is not confined to any religion, he is not confined to any particular way of life or particular way of being. He is indeed vast, infinite, the true, the real, the one, the unique, so many ways. Any attempt to define him or confine him to a frame of reference comes in the way. And yet in the beginning, the divine allows this. So as is our faith, so he tends to confine himself. And it can go to any extent. And that's why it's so important to check upon the basic faith, the ideas we have, the conceptions we have of the divine. 
So if we conceive that the divine punishes us, we will go through series of experiences where we will believe that the divine is punishing us. If we believe that the divine is cruel and far, he will appear cruel and far because that's necessary for our own progress. If we believe he is near, very near, very close, intimate, the very stuff of our being, he will be very near, very close, very intimate, the very stuff of our being. If we believe that he is very complicated like us and you know he loves to play with philosophy, he'll play with philosophies. And we will talk to him, are you personal or impersonal or suprapersonal? And the divine will say, well, try to figure it out. If we put him on some mountain peak as an absolute, he will appear like an absolute above, far, on some mountain peak. So it's so important to start with a conception of divine which itself is very integral. And that's what we see so beautiful in the Mother and Shobindu's writings. And it is from this conception that the possibility of a divine life or interacting with divine in life emerges. We have cut off life. You know, one of the big problems with uh, religious, ethical and other such frames is that it divides life into two. Often a black and a white. Which is okay. At a certain point it's necessary. When we are too much like a brute and an animal, it's needed because that's how we need to navigate. Otherwise we'll be disoriented. But it creates a kind of artificiality. There are certain things which are sanctioned by religion, certain things which are not sanctioned. For instance, we have to take a bath in the morning before we take God's name. We have to be in a particular place and in a particular way we have to call him. For everything there is a classical way of doing it. That's how religion operates. There is a classical way of relating to the divine. There is a classical way of uh, approaching him. There is a classical method of doing yoga. We have, for instance, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, step by step. Yoga made easy. You know, like um, all kinds of, used to have those kunjis. I don't know if anybody has uh, experienced kunjis. <laughs> Some know it. So, you know, during MBBS and medicine and engineering for competitions, we had those books which made complicated things very easy. So, you know, step by step and you have a checklist and see I have done this, I have done this. But divine, well, if we want to do it like that, it's alright. But for everything, there is an equally valid, unorthodox approach. And that's the beauty of the divine. He is neither this nor this. He can blend both depending on how we approach him. So very often people ask, for example, what is the best time to meditate? And normally the classical answer is early morning or evening when the sun is setting. And there is a good logic and science and method to it. The other answer is whenever you feel like. It's a very unorthodox answer, but very good answer that, well, when we feel like meditating, not to meditate then is insincerity. Mother speaks about it. There are moments when we are seized by something greater than ourselves, something higher, something inner, something which is unspeakable, about which we cannot describe, but we want to just sit, be quiet, go within, and we should respect that moment. That is the mood of the moment. That's the moment divine has come to us. He comes without as much as saying, may I come in, sir? He knocks. You know, Shobindo's whole life, he says, Nirvana walked into my life. 
without as much as asking, may I come in? He doesn't care about it. All that he sees is, well, maybe this is the moment to play with him and he just goes, if it pleases him. Someone asked the mother, uh, someone asked Shurabindo, that, you know, has the divine changed his plans? He said, of course he can. He can change his plans anytime if it so pleases him. There is nothing like fixity in the divine movement. There is a determinism. At the same time, there is a freedom. And once we understand this play in this particular way, then we can begin to devise our own unique methods. Because the best time is, the most auspicious time is, any time when the divine soul wills it. And that's the perfect way of living. And it applies for everything. People fix marriages according to time. And, you know, very often people fix marriages in India based on all kind of kundli and time. And uh, I don't know which is better. One, when it succeeds, so-called, when both are very unhappy but living together all their life, or when it breaks up, and which one is to be blamed? It doesn't really matter. Similarly, we fix up time and place. You know, somebody asked me, uh, which is the best place to do sadhana? You know, there is a concept of uh, Peter, where one should, uh, you know, do sadhana. So we were sitting in the dispensary across each other. So I said, well, this is the best place to do sadhana. <laughs> Wherever we are, that is the best place. Why do we have to wait for a particular place and go to a certain place and do sadhana there? It has its meaning, but well, there is an unorthodox, a very free flowing something in life and we can connect with that and that's something wonderful. And the only way, the mother says, to really live life in a true way is to live from moment to moment with the sincerity, with the, with the honesty of that moment, fullness of that moment. Even we may be doing a work to completely be with that work. That itself can give us an experience of stepping out of our boundaries and come in contact with something great, something beautiful, something much vaster than our limited existence. So the divine is not confined to our notions, our ideas of what should be and should not be. It, there are so many ex- stories in, in Indian, uh, you know, there is a very fascinating story about a tapasvi who does a lot of tapasya for many years. And then he acquires great powers. One of the powers he has is to burn down anything that he wills. So while he is doing his tapasya, penance, suddenly one bird lets off her droppings not realizing that he is a great tapasvi, she is not supposed to do it. The bird didn't know about it. And the man looked up and the bird burned to ashes. And then proud of his powers, he goes, uh, you know, he needs food, so he goes to a house and asks for food. So the lady is a little late in coming. So the tapasvi calls her aloud and says, don't you know who is standing at your doors? She says, yes, yes, I know, but I am not the bird whom you can reduce to ashes. So he's shocked. How does she know this lady? When she comes out, he says, tell me what sadhana you are doing. She says, oh, nothing particular. From morning to evening, I am busy looking after the household. And of course, uh, that's my life. No, 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 you must tell me the secret. She says, I am not destined to tell you the secret. But if you want to learn the secret, I can send you to someone else. So who is this someone else? Go and ask Kanshi the butcher. She says, what? The butcher knows the secret of yoga? <laughs> yes, the butcher knows the secret of yoga. 
It's something so, so vast. And we reduce the divine to many, many formulas. So if we have to reduce him to formula, all that we need to do is <laughs> to download an app, spiritual app. <laughs> and install it in the heart of our being. That's all that we need to do. It should be our own magic formula. You know, we talk about mantra and there are so many mantras, classical mantras and, you know, in India we are full of mantras, all kinds of mantras. When mother speaks about her mantra, she says, you know, for many years I used to call the divine by this mantra. So, you know, we are all ears what mantra she is going to speak of. And she says, all that I would say is, my Lord. You know, then, you know, when I read it, I remembered how as children in India, uh, we used to say, hey Prabhu. And I thought, oh my God, I lost so many moments. I used to say, hey Prabhu, it's basically my Lord. But I never could put that state of consciousness into it. And the mother so beautifully, she says, for many years, all that I would do is say, my Lord, and he would be there. That's her way of connecting. Or again, another mantra she used to say in French was, Lord of mercy and kindness. He says, this was, the, this was one aspect of the divine which came very close to her. Lord of mercy and kindness. Because he had come to manifest grace upon earth. And so we all can form and should form our own unique relationship with the divine. Something which is beautiful, something which is our point of contact. So there is a twofold way of searching. One is a negative way where life, not it becomes hard and burdened. If we are running away from life, we are not yet ready. But life, even when everything is there, still there is something missing. Something like a factor X, very important which we cannot quite lay our hands on. And therefore we feel it's a prison. Not that because circumstances are bad, difficult and therefore we want to run. In fact, circumstances or difficult circumstances themselves can become a wonderful catalyst. Everything in life can be turned to come in contact with the divine, as we said, including waiting at the airport. There are so many such beautiful, small little experiences one can have. I remember waiting at Singapore airport. Not yesterday's story, but long back, my first visit to US and then returning back. And as I was waiting at the airport, I started wondering, there is something very, very fundamental missing in this place. And I couldn't know what, because I had heard so highly about the place. So I went out on a, you know, we had good amount of time, so on a two-hour, whatever they take you out um, and then return you back. And again, I kept feeling that something very fundamental is missing. And suddenly I had this feeling that, oh my God, I am in a place which, is, which has everything but is dead inside. Now, this was my feeling of the place. And so I said, okay, let me um, confirm it. So I had Savitri in my hand and not that I recommend that every time you have a problem, open Savitri. Nothing should be reduced to a fixed formula. But at that moment, I felt like it and I opened. And exactly lines which, uh, you know, conf- like confirmatory that, yes, everything is there. But something is missing and one needs a certain kind of sensitivity for that. So as I was saying that, you know, we are in the midst of greenery, isolation, we can go to forest. But this something which is missing in life, that is the starting point of the search. And as long as we feel, no, it's fine, everything is just fine, then we have not yet 
embarked upon the path. And the other part is that it has a positive side to it. And the positive side is that we can start with an idea, a conception, with a seeking, a search. But one of the biggest things which comes in the way is that we formulate it too strictly. That's why the Mother and Shobindo were never keen on formulating experiences. So there are many paths where we are told, if you do this, you will have this experience. Even sometimes it goes to absurd extents. There was one of the camps in which there was a young boy who had done some kind of a Kundalini course in one of the you know places. It doesn't matter. The place and all is not important. So, you know, generally someone asked, you know, what is this Kundalini experience? So this boy suddenly sprang up. He was all fresh with whatever he had read. He said, you know, there is a snake lying at the bottom of your spine and it's three and a half feet in length as it stands up. (laughs) So (laughs) there was another person. He said, no, no, you are not right. It was not three and a half feet. It was two and a half feet. So both kept started debating. So then I asked him, did any of you measure the (laughs) height of the snake as it stood up? And they were at loss. Now, you know, this is not how the experience takes place. This kind of a uh, formulating an experience, sometimes even formulating a vision, sometimes formulating that, you know, you will see a light, you will hear a sound, you will experience this in the spine. When the divine comes, you will have this. This reduces it to... um, Something very small, narrow, sometimes even cheap, even vulgar, it can go to that extent. Why limit him? He may not do any of these things. He may simply come and we may just feel a little touch on the hairs. And we may be filled with the touch of the Divine Mother on our heads. And it's so beautiful when it is spontaneous. So there has to be a certain degree of spontaneity in our seeking not a very strict formulation of what the divine is and is not because it itself will come in the way and he plays, he loves to play we were speaking about the various relations humanity has formed with the divine and the guru and disciple is just one of them and then the divine mother and the child a master and the slave but there is another relation we can form with the divine a relation all of us can form and sometimes I have found it so beautiful even used it a couple of times spontaneously with some people, someone who was in kind of state of crisis, but had a fondness for Krishna. So spontaneously came to, at that point of time, again, you know, the risk of all these things is they can be reduced to a formula. And one can start a whole branch of yoga and patent it that, you know, do this and it will work. It doesn't work like that. So at least to this person, I said, well, uh, why not? Treat Krishna as your friend because the person used to feel very lonely. That, you know, I feel very lonely and, you know, I don't know what to do. I said, why don't you, you know, treat Krishna as your friend? So the person said, all right. And I forgot about it. And after five years, this person tells me, you know, it was such a wonderful thing. And my friend is so good, so kind. And I had actually forgotten. And I was wondering which friend. So, well, you only suggested to me Krishna. And then it struck me. See, we can form such a beautiful relation with the divine as friend, confidant. Tell him everything, whatever is happening in our life. The mother has made it so, so very simple for us. As friend and confidant, play with him. Even tricks with him. How mother and Sri have played with people. We know how mother would, 
you know sometimes play games all kinds of games she used to play games with flowers that you know she would suddenly uh, ask people to form a sentence with flowers and they would form a sentence and then she would play games even with toffees and she would play games with tennis she would play games when she was going in a car all kinds of things and that's the beauty of the divine that we can play with him as a friend and a playmate so there there are no fixed rules of this relationship and no terms and he loves it like that we have this wonderful story of shurbindo called uh, dream where he says well this man who is uh, sitting and wondering why i am so poor and the man in front of me is so rich so he says if the divine came to me if krishna came to me i would tie up his hands and beat him and shobindo says krishna appears and says here are my hands and he said no 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 i didn't mean it this way i am sorry he said no no i loved it because everybody treats me puts me on a pedestal but you know you are the one who is treating me as someone living alive and i am so happy why don't you beat me and he says no no actually you know looking at all this i was wondering and how krishna takes him all through into the consciousness of people shows him the re- real truth of what karma is and you know how we can be deceived by appearances what is the real thing happening inside the consciousness so all this we can learn when we take divine as friend how beautifully the gita is revealed to arjuna for whom the divine was none else but friend and this is another kind of relationship which we can form with the divine of a friend a confidant or still further of lover and beloved and it goes to very interesting levels you know we talk about jealousy in love and someone has said so beautifully the most jealous lover is the divine he makes sure that nothing else will stand between you and him and it's something so beautiful to know that he loves you so much he will make sure that nothing else can come in the way whatever you may try but he will eventually draw you back to him and keep you close to his heart so there is so many ways that we can relate with the divine even as a child we can relate with him and this can make our contact so so very easy spontaneous natural but if you want to make it very complicated very philosophical then of course there are all the books in the world if you want to make it very methodical tied down to fixed formulas then again there are other books in the world if you want to limit it to a particular approach to a cult a sect a way of life then fine he will come like that so these are the countless windows that open upon the infinite in our everyday life and every day they open upon us every day number of times as we were reading from the mother number of times there are many moments given to us when there is nothing nobody and we are all alone with our smartphones of course but maybe <laughs> we can instead activate that other app it is given to us to everybody it is given it's not something given to some exceptional people and perhaps the lesser we are surrounded with things the more we are likely to find those moments but we lose them so many times very often people ask this question at least they used to ask what is the kind of routine of a ideal sadhak now you know this is a weird question basically because we don't know who an ideal sadhak is the only ideal sadhaks are mother and shurbindo <laughs> and what was their routine like how shurbindo was is so plastic so supple 
you know there was nothing fixed about shirbindo even his breakfast time was not fixed from morning 9 it would be pushed to 11 12 1 o'clock 1:30 3 3:30 and shirbindo would be sitting not that you know i have to have my breakfast at this fixed time why because i have to do sadhana nothing whenever wherever he was all that the the people around would register that he would be gazing into infinity so beautifully every small little act can change into something divine it's a question of forming a conscious relationship our relationship right now with creation is and with ourselves is very egocentric or very unconscious mostly it is unconscious very mechanical so we just go through life without noticing anything even if the divine came and just told us that look look how are you and we would probably just wave our hands and say howdy and just go away or maybe we will say don't disturb me don't you see i am lost in my thoughts i am solving a complicated problem so there is no space left in our life for any kind of divine reconnection with the world it's it's we have lost it kind of because of the mental load we are carrying everything has become so complicated and the mother would want us to become very very simple very simple in this simplicity lies the great art of life the joy of life the the beauty of our connection with the divine and it's not going to be easy to really regain that simplicity so this is one of the things that one gathers so beautifully from mother and shirbindo that we have to not complicate things by delving too much into all kinds of abstruse philosophies and complicated concepts it doesn't help us it may be good for mental exercise but what really helps us to have a kind of direct relation and the more we form it for each one of us it 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 will be unique it will be something beautiful it will be our own unique relation with the divine so this is the basic background of the seeking the second aspect of this seeking is that it has its own time it will it's like not something which we can force others into this is another tendency that we feel that spiritual life can be um somehow spoon fed it doesn't work like that each one has his own time when the person awakens to this necessity of the inner change and it can happen at any moment when it is going to happen we don't know but when we try to do it we create an another kind of imbalance in the rhythm of life every stage of life has its purpose and its preparation its joy almost as it were and if we try to skip these stages or try to push it down somebody's throat it often creates a disturbance because we tell the person that look you know you have to be simple connect with the divine in any which way even this can become a problem people feel oh very nice so i can become very lazy and complacent though the mother even says that that people are afraid that if they do this they will become lazy and complacent and she says even this is a mental concept if you really become simple and connect with the divine the divine will respond like that nevertheless this is something which has to grow very organically and this fire as one grows automatically naturally spontaneously the more we feed it it will grow through all kinds of experiences of life everything will become a catalyst and sometimes we don't understand at a given point of time why things are happening the way they are happening 
But if we just wait, just go through, look back and then we will see, yes, how even that has fed the fire and it has grown more and more. And the other thing which feeds this fire, this seeking, is a constant recognition of the divine in life. This aspiration needs this recognition. Otherwise, we just are waiting for one high point. This is the big problem. Some people take spirituality like, you know, it's an ambition to be fulfilled. You know, like there are two kinds of people who get into a job. One with an aim on what I will become at the end of, you know, maybe end of the journey. CEO or whatever, MD or own the company. And there are other who enter because they love the job. So those who have an eye on what they will become, they are very, very unhappy and frustrated. So many people enter into spiritual life with the idea of having some great, fantastic spiritual experience. And, you know, they give fanciful names, very good names, self-realization. And, you know, they have already created a formation and they are waiting for that to happen. And in the process, when it doesn't happen, the vital, the mind, it all becomes very... Uh, it, you know, it, it doesn't collaborate anymore because they are pursuing it under the stress of an ambition. I would become a yogi. Suddenly there will be a halo around the face. All kinds of things. But that's not how it is. There is another way to approach it. The joy of the journey, the joy of the path. It's a becoming. It's not something which is like waking up in the morning and, well, that does happen, but that happens as a result of a series of small, small, small experiences. And the mother says that if you don't accept those experiences and recognize them for what they are, Shubindo speaks about it also when, you know, Niruddha would ask him that, was it real? I felt like that. He says that if you discard these experiences as unreal and do not recognize them, then how will the major things come? So this idea about spirituality as self-realization with an end point and we are striving towards it almost with a kind of ambition, it is a very counterproductive. To haste on the road is actually to slow down the process and to be patient, to be willing to walk if necessary. There are moments when one runs, there are moments when one crawls, there are moments when one is pinned down and yet if one can call at that moment, then one advances because there are different parts of nature and they have different, um, different pace at which they move. So this aspiration which is seeking in the depths of our being has to be slowly lit in different parts and that takes time because they are not ready. If the fire is suddenly lit, it can create other kinds of imbalances. So it happens. The mind may not collaborate in the beginning, but slowly this pressure of aspiration as it burns in the heart is bound to affect these different parts of our nature and a day comes when even the body begins to aspire for the divine. So this is the journey and this is the seeking at every level, in every way one has to seek the divine. Divine as knowledge, wisdom, truth. Divine also as the beloved, as the lover, as friend, father, mother, master, everything. The divine as the one who is out of whom this whole creation has immersed. The divine who is the very substance of our being and of whose uh, substance we have been born. So at every level this seeking has to be lit, this aspiration has to be lit. And then the whole thing begins to grow more and more. 
The other aspect of this seeking is, this search is that as this fire grows, it automatically shows us what are the things to be removed from our nature at certain points of time. Again, very often we make a very mental list of it and we start ticking it. Like, you know, what is to be accepted, what is not to be accepted. While, again, this is a framework which helps. But as the fire grows, it will show us. Because it's a light, it's an illumination. It's bound to show. And if it is not showing, then probably there is something amiss. So it shows us at different points of time and not only shows us, has the capacity to burn them away. So the whole process is a working from within outwards. And the more we allow this fire to grow, the more the process becomes simpler, easier, natural, organic, spontaneous, and the journey becomes smoother and delightful. So this is just a little background. Afternoon sessions are normally kind of interactive sessions. So if anybody has a question or anything one wants to share, we can take that up. Yes, please. Why is he? Yeah. Yes, it's a very beautiful question. Yeah. So, if the divine is everywhere, why is he hidden? Uh, there are three, four angles to this question. One is that divine, in all his intensity and glory, we are not ready to receive and we will be shocked by that contact. There are such interesting examples. That's why the journey is so long and one has to go through many, many experiences of life. And that's why if we haste on the path, then it doesn't help. It can be counterproductive. We have in Indian thought the story of Jatayu and Sampathi and there is an equivalent story in Greek mythology of Didylus and Icarus. Both you know, want to fly to the sun. And the elder one tells the younger, don't try this. If you try this, it's dangerous. No, no, I can fly. I have strong wings. And tries to fly and sure enough, Sampati, we know that while he gets tremendous capacity to look far, but his wings are burnt and he's unable to move. It's a very interesting story in the Ramayana that here is a being who can see very, very far knowledge, but he's powerless. You know, it's the story of somebody who, who develops tremendous knowledge but is not able to advance even one step on the path. But yes, that knowledge can be helpful to somebody else. So, one reason is that, well, the divine is in all his splendor. If he were to manifest himself, we won't be able to contain it. And the mother and Shobindu used to speak about it. Even it was so difficult, few moments to stand before mother and Shobindu was many people couldn't just take it. And that's why children were not allowed. Of course, mother made all kinds of exceptions. But she said they are very receptive and they would lose their head. And she, she has even said that, why have I come like you? I have, if I didn't come like you, one, I could not tell you how to become like me. And second, you won't even recognize me. This is the second part of it. The other aspect of it is that at another level, if we leave aside this wonderful glory and the ultimate... Um, that infinite experience which Arjuna was a privy to because of a, uh, you know, giving that exceptional grace, this divine sight. But the other aspect is that at another level, the divine is indeed very close. 
he is not really far he is very near he touches us he feels us he carries us but we are not ready or capable of even experiencing that because our senses are so gross they have become so heavy this is the other uh, if i may use the word scientific problem uh, in the sense that our senses have been indulging so far in very very gross things they are capable of picking up only gross vibrations only gross touches gross experiences and we make them even more gross there was a point of time when you know i would uh, while watching the television this thought would suddenly come to me oh my god my ears are getting tuned to all this you know news channel or this or that how will i listen to the divine voice if the divine uh, you know calls me because they are becoming more gross they are getting attuned to something very hard something very crude uh, i mean news channels are very crude i must tell you the you know, <laughs> i hope there are no journalists but you know that's that's a fact so even our eyes they are indulging in all kinds of crude things we are constantly looking for darkness ugliness almost ready to point out that little stain on somebody's shirt so even our taste it it only understands things when they are you know very hard very strong very pungent very rich very spicy and then we feel ah it is tasty so if the divine amrit you know as they say if it trickles down to the tongue how are we going to taste it so that's why in hat yoga they practice all kinds of austerities just to be able to get these senses disabused from this kind of a gross entrapment so at another level we may say that the divine is indeed very near he is not hidden at all but we don't experience his touch much as maybe an ant doesn't know that an elephant is standing just next to it it doesn't understand that the breeze is touching and carrying it or is a reed or straw floating on the ocean lost in itself and this is the third reason doesn't know that it is not pushing the ocean the ocean is carrying it so the third reason is that we are uh, living in this prison house not only of the material senses but also our psychological prison house if you really look uh, the human condition all of us you know at different points of time it's not that some people and not some others we walk through life surrounded in a prison and we don't realize the prison of our thoughts our feelings and usually our thoughts and feelings are centered around ourselves so we are never able to really step out and feel the touch of the divine which is all the time waiting otherwise maybe just standing before the ocean we may just feel in that breeze which comes and caresses us the touch of the divine mother and it may be and it's not a thought formation it may be very very concrete or in the blooming of a flower the joy the mother smile at us but we are not able to get these messages and signals of eternity simply because we are so much lost we we are living in a prison surrounded by it and this is the worst kind of prison even when we are standing before the divine we only ask him to strengthen the bars of the prison oh i want this i want that and the divine just wonders you know that my god you are already in a prison house you want more you know this is the difference between asuras and the uh, sages so asuras also do great tapasya but at the end of the tapasya they want only 
more thick bars to strengthen their prison. And immediately that is why after the tapasya, they start moving away from the divine. It's a very interesting story. The divine gives a chance. And yet every, almost every asura, almost. Soon after the tapasya is over, he has asked a boon which has suddenly cut him off as it were from the divine. And he begins to live in a state of heightened egoism. It is a lesson for all of us. Whereas the other kind, you know, if there is the vision of the divine, one says, may I love you more and more. There is a very nice touching story of Krishna Prem. We must have heard about him, Roland Nixon, and you know, he was uh, very Christian, Krishna Prem. He had his own guru, Maya Shoda, a very um, seemingly ordinary lady. But you see, when we turn to the divine, anything that divine can use as a catalyst. And he had very beautiful experiences of his own. Dilip Kumar Roy was very close to him. And Shobindo has spoken of uh, Krishna Prem as having seeing intelligence, Pashyanti Vak. So this Krishna Prem, when he came to the ashram and he met the mother, the mother recounts it that, you know what he asked me? I was deeply touched and moved. So what did he ask? He said, grant me more and more bhakti for my guru. And the mother said, but you already have it. And he said, no, I want more. And the mother was deeply moved and touched that here is a soul. This is the material which is fit for yoga, really in the right sense of the word. So we actually, uh, third reason why we don't experience it, because we are living in a very, very close shell, which we don't realize, unfortunately, makes it worse. So these are the three reasons which cut us away from that infinite. And yet, as I was saying, that every day to all of us, despite this prison house, there are several windows which open. Sometimes one gets up and just looks at the sun and this is a small window opening. But we are in a hurry. When we are taking a bath, there is a small window opening. Why? Because we are alone. There is nobody else. And we can, that's a time when, you know, with the coming of this there were some very nice traditions in Indian thought which we have lost now naturally because they became very mechanical but as a child I remember uh, we didn't have the shower and all so we used to put water with uh, the jug I'm sure you must have experienced it and we had a we were, you know it, there was no uh, water heating facility also I mean you could heat it in the normal chula but too complicated so you simply take water from the well and you take a bath. But there was one thing very interesting. So every time we put the water, because it will feel cold and we had heard and observed it from a parent, we would say, Har Har Gange, Har Har Gange. <laughs> I don't, we invoke the name of Ganges. Har Har Gange, Har Har Gange. So you know, in spirituality also there is something called as improvisation. So this I learned as a child, but I didn't know its meaning. So then I, now I have improvised it. So every time I take a bath in the shower, I imagine that, you know, I am being showered by her light and bliss and peace all around and all inside. So, you know, it's a beautiful moment and it's a sense of the divine we can have. But of course, the ultimate experience, as I said, that glory of glories, naturally, many such small touches will prepare us and both kinds, the positive kind and the negative kind, because all the various events and circumstances that challenge our limits, basically they come to help us become vast so that we can step out of our comfort zone and we can be more ready to receive Him. Otherwise, divine is limited even with our conceptions. 
what he can be what he cannot be what he can do what he cannot do so a lot of time and energy of the divine goes into removing these conceptions till ultimately we say well you are capable of everything and i am nobody to create any concepts about you now would you embrace me and he would be there and ready to embrace because that has to be a preparation that's why the journey is so long and yet there is a way it can become very very short as the mother says the path is long but surrender makes it the path is difficult but surrender makes it easy the journey is long but self giving makes it short so if instead of wanting if you just give and experience for one moment the joy of giving ourselves to the divine and always there is something to give it's not about giving some material possessions which fine if it is there we can give that if not we can give work to the divine mother used to say there are three kinds of people needed for the fullness of the yoga one those who can bring money those who can bring work and those who can do sadhana or bring the energy of aspiration seeking love into the yoga so always there is something to give we can give our thoughts to the divine we can give our feelings to the divine and the more we give the more we'll grow into that consciousness till at the end we discover that there was never any two there was always only one any other yes please western question we say or you hear this very often here by the grace of god here go i is it the same as the will of god or the grace of the divine what's the difference between grace and the will between the will of god and the grace of god okay it's an angular vision so it's a very interesting question and a very uh, i would say a very tricky question because <laughs> well this world is this creation is the expression of the divine will but a distorted expression because the divine has allowed an apparent freedom to all other little little wills or rather we may say that in all of us there is the will which is active the divine will but our portion of that will as it enters into our being it is usurped by the ego and turned and distorted towards egoistic purposes and therefore the path is no more straight and sunlit it tends to deviate into different tracks different channels and again and again the will has to bring it back because there is a constant pressure of this will despite all our deviations and distortions this will is always there prevailing over our conscious choice as shubindu says a will prevails over over our conscious choice so this will is all the time there which is active but this will takes into cognizance the world play and all the various forces which have gone into the play forces which are both at once individual and universal so this is how the will operates it's not something which operates arbitrarily now there are moments when this divine will assumes an aspect which is extremely powerful beautiful and it can leap us through you know it can take us if i may use a more modern language through a wormhole into the infinity and when the divine will puts on that shape that form then we say it is grace it cuts through centuries of labor 
and leads us suddenly through a short opening as it were into the future it makes us leap through the, into the future but that's not how normally and ordinarily the divine will operates it takes into account the various play of forces and uh, takes it through that shubindu puts it very beautifully in one of his late letters where he says that in all this thing we recognize uh, in all traditions we recognize three things one is the law now the law with a capital l that this is a divine law now normally the will operates in this way that well there is a law through which we evolve in the journey and it's a long process and it's a complex process and we are being pushed through the doors of that law we we are bound by that law so this is one aspect then he says that beyond the law there is compassion so compassion enters into the law and intervenes from time to time giving a little push here a little nudge there and picking up this being who is caught in the law and suddenly pulling us temporarily out of the net and putting us back on the path so this is compassion of the divine but he says beyond the law and the compassion there is grace so grace when it operates it suddenly can efface a whole it it doesn't follow any law any rule or we may say that it has its own law it is a law unto itself and when that operates it's not very common though but when that operates i mean at one level yes there is nothing else but this creation is an expression of grace but at another level we may say that the direct intervention of grace in an individual's life when that happens it suddenly changes everything you know the normal process through which we are evolving is changed and if i may use the word the most delightful and beautiful aspect of this grace is love so when the divine takes upon again in this whole creation there is nothing else but love this is one way to look at it because behind everything there is love it is love that has gone into creation and taken upon itself the burden of pulling creation out of its misery its torment its struggle suffering darkness falsehood in which it is caught but i am talking from an individual angle of vision that when that love becomes active more commonly when we allow it to act normally we don't allow it to act because we believe in the law we don't believe in love we believe in the certain methods process and journey we don't believe in grace so when we allow it to become active then things can change delightfully forever when that love holds us and carries us on the path then everything is wonderful the journey as much as the end the good and the bad everything becomes part of an expression of that love but the problem is that as human beings most of us do not allow the grace and that love to act we don't recognize it we don't open to it in fact strangely paradoxically amazingly stupidly human beings resist it this is a paradox which at least i don't have a answer to it but there are people who believe that if somebody you know has devotion for the divine it's sign of an inferiority oh it is sentimentality this is not what yoga is it's regarded as something which is you know as and it's not only western context everywhere the same same issue why it is there of course mother and shubhendra have spoken about it but if at all there is something sad in this world at least my perception 
it is this that human beings feel a great pride in turning away from the savior hands of grace and in not recognizing the embrace of love of the divine at least to me it is the most tragic thing to happen in life but it's a fact yes sir yeah. can i ask a question uh, how you define openness to grace it's not like pulling yeah not at all crying. not at all simple act of recognizing with gratitude everything in life and sometimes i remember at one place uh, you know in the most trivial of things countless things that happen and we recognize the grace but instead very often we have a convenient way of giving beautiful explanations let's say that you know uh, you appeared for a certain examination and you passed now what is the tendency of the human beings i did it don't you know i am a stanford graduate we have shut the doors to grace we have not even allowed that there is something which has gone beyond our calculations but when things go wrong look god he did it to me now you know we played both ways <laughs> this is not fair <laughs> either we say that well if i did it by my own efforts then if i fell down and things went wrong it is i am the one who is responsible or else we can say that well it's not me but grace and then we will see that even when things don't go right as they would inevitably it won't be that you know i was giving this example and always there is a fear of examples that it can work both ways for instance well i got a ticket at the airport and suddenly but there would be moments when well i won't and i have to wait and that has also happened now it doesn't mean that the mother is not active at that point of time of course she is that's another way to uh, you know uh, get in touch with her remember her sitting at the airport you feel okay very fine she is there she wants me to just call her she is trying to play another game she plays many kinds of games so this is one kind of game and both have their own validity and joy so to recognize the grace and feel grateful for everything in life and literally you know when one says everything it means everything when things happen our way uh, or rather let me put it paradoxically when things happen our way we may not be sure of grace but when they don't happen our way then we can suddenly be sure of grace <laughs> because we are pushed out of a comfort zone so everything is grace when something comes our way beautiful things happen in life so many uh, ways that the divine touches our life but we don't recognize we always give credit always to you know either mostly to ourselves and to people or to luck that strange mysterious factor luck or if we have nothing else chance but if we could recognize so that opens us to grace there are other things also but as the mother has said that the only thing which opens us to grace and the sign is recognizing and to feel grateful to it for the countless things from the smallest to the biggest things i mean if i have to look at all of us you know we are here what should we feel grateful for the biggest thing imagine life what it would be if we had not known that there is something known as the divine we could have lived life without that the countless people who don't believe in the divine what a torture it is to life imagine that there is no aim there is no goal of existence a state of consciousness where we are completely submerged in darkness we recognize nothing but darkness as the beginning and end 
And there are people who are close to this. You know, how much ever logically you may say, well, it cannot be this way. But, well, there, there is something twisted inside the brain which doesn't accept it. Well, no, we see only darkness. And if, if our life would have been that. So grateful that there is something like the divine. Grateful that he has called us on the path. Already, you know, two big levels of hurdles have been crossed. Grateful that he walks with us and is willing to take our burden on his shoulders. It's something wonderful. Grateful that there are countless ways he reveals himself to us. Grateful for the many, many small little things. Grateful for every day when we wake up in life. And, you know, it fills us with a new joy that here is one more day we can come closer to him. And at the end, grateful for every breath and heartbeat. We have one more moment to remember him. So there are so many things we have to be grateful for. But we look at the other side, what we have not. So this is my understanding of, you know, this famous theory of haves and have not. We know this theory, you know, this uh, Ayn Rand and <laughs> all that stuff. Haves and have nots. So I have my own explanation of who are the haves and who are the have nots. So haves are those who always look at things which are there and they have received from the divine and are very happy about it. And the have nots are they who are always looking at what they have not and they are always complaining about it and feeling miserable about it. So this is the sad part. So we have so much, so much to be grateful for. Yes. So is she saying that uh, today you can receive the grace more than maybe? Yes, about receptivity on birthdays. Well, it is based on a subtle occult truth of our nature that there are cycles of time. So, you know, and we can also set our own cycles. And that's where comes the methodical aspect. We were talking about the unorthodox forms of yoga. And the other is about the classical things. Now, classical things are much like mathematics. So, in life, there is a pattern. And we can pick up that pattern, study that pattern. And interestingly, set our own patterns, even utilize existing patterns. For instance, New Year. So, the mother says beautifully that, well, New Year is actually a convention. If you look at it, it's a convention. We could start any which day. You know, in, in Hindu calendar, it starts somewhere else in in, in in India, many calendars are there where New Year starts, you know, in so many different days. But by convention, world over now, we believe that, well, 1st of January is a New Year. It's not an absolute truth. But she says we can utilize it. Because it's a convention, so everybody that day is little more, okay, now a new leaf is going to turn, as if something drastic is going to happen. They are the same politicians, the same issue, the same humanity. But, you know, there is a collective feeling. So similarly on birthday, because life, there is also a mathematics of life. Of course, grace goes beyond mathematics. Uh, but there is a mathematics of life and it can be utilized. And one such mathematics is that on birthdays, there is the moment of our birth repeats itself. Now, what really is birth? It's a great mystery. Actually, what you have uh, said, you know, touches the core mystery. The core mystery of creation is not death. Because death is not the first mystery. The core mystery of creation is birth. Birth is the first mystery. Because birth literally, if there is birth, death becomes a logical possibility. Need not be, but it becomes a possibility. But birth is the first mystery. Why the infinite 
wears a finite form and shape. That's what birth is about. All of us in our deepest essence are infinite. But all of us are wearing finite form and shape. So why we have bone? Well, that mystery, that infinity wears a finite form and shape with a certain purpose. And what is that purpose? In each of us, that little purpose lives. And the day we have chosen to wear a finite form and shape, that purpose is embodied or clothed itself in a particular persona, mask, which we call as ourselves. Now that moment repeats itself, cyclically. So on that day, we are suddenly close to that purpose because time brings it back in a rhythm of nature. That day we are still, you know, once again we have a chance to relive that purpose. And that purpose, of course, that's why we are open, receptive and full of that joy, aspiration. Because though physically we are born from a physical parent, mother, but originally we are born from the Divine Mother. And so it's like a memory of that moment and that original purpose which we can relive. And Yes, that's why she gave so much importance. And interesting thing from this is that we can also create our own patterns. You know, our own uh, cycles. For instance, you know, when people speak about meditation. Now, this is the other side of the coin. That's why the word of the scripture can be so uh, tricky. On one side, it is true that any moment can be a moment. Equally, it is true that if we set aside a fixed moment for meditation, it helps. Because now we are setting our own patterns, our own cycles, as long as we are not strictly and rigidly bound to it. That's all that we must remember that, well, it's a pattern, it's helpful, fine, we use it. But we must always know that in the infinity there is enough room for all kinds of play of possibilities. So on birthdays we are very receptive. There are people who in the ashram context specifically used to say that, well, And even now they celebrate that the day I came, that is my birthday. And the mother has sanctioned that also. That the day they had darshan of the Divine Mother, that's his birthday. And the many people, they celebrate it like that. And I thank the mother for resolving this dilemma for me. Without knowing the significance of the birthday, I landed up in the ashram on the eve before my birthday. Without knowing the significance of birthday, I just walked up to Shirobindo's room on that day. And then I came to know, wow, it is so good that on my birthday I went to Sri Aurobindo's room for the first time. So, you know, that conflict did not come. Otherwise, we can also celebrate two birthdays. Why not? Uh, You know, it's very interesting how the mother has played with both. You know, I was reading the other day on Darshan Day. Now, Darshan Day is another cyclic event. And we know how it is, uh, you know, celebrated in the ashram context. And then at one place, the mother says that, you know what, originally the Darshan days had a special meaning. It was the time for the descent of a force on a particular day because other days nature was not yet ready, not fully receptive. But on the Darshan days, uh, Darshan days were what? Mother and Shurabindu's birthday. So they, they were descent into nature of the supernature. Later on, 24th April and uh, 24th November and 24th April were added. But initially, these were the two days. Now, you know, there were moments when nature had no choice but to become receptive and open to the descent of a higher consciousness. But after 1956, and if I remember right, in 1958, the mother speaks about it, 
after she has given the message that nature has agreed to collaborate. She says, nowadays these descents occur at any point of time and you have to be just receptive. They don't necessarily occur only on darshan days. They may occur randomly, they, may, they occur more frequently. So you see how there is the joy and the beauty of pattern, like you know, birthday. But there is also true, the other truth is also there that every day can be a birthday. And the mother speaks about it very beautifully and uh, Amalda has written a lot about this message of hers where she says to celebrate the birth of a transitory body. Actually there was this thing whether it's transient or transitory. So let me, transitory body is, has a meaning for the faithful. But to celebrate the birth of a new consciousness is something, is an exceptional privilege and it is something that can be done at each moment of time. So it is also true that in a certain sense every moment we are newborn and every day we are newborn and we can also celebrate many many birthdays and probably maybe that's how in ancient times people used to live for a thousand years, I don't know. They may be having some calculation of birthdays like that. That even a year, if I have four birthdays, then 100 years will be equal to 400 years. No, I am sure they lived long. I mean, certainly lived long. Thousand years may sound fantastic, but at least a few hundred years for sure. So this is how the special significance of birthdays and the cycles of time in general. Aspiration is really, really... Uh, and I have seen it. I am sure you have experienced so many people... In the ashram context, what it means to have a birthday. It is really a very, very exceptionally special day. And the memories for me are very fresh because just a few days back, 19 June, I had my birthday and they are so fresh. And the mother showers from all sides in every way. It's something exceptional moment. And I must say that if maybe there are some people who have not been to Pondicherry, I don't know. Uh, if you don't want to go on darshan days. Now darshan days are very, very crowded. Go on your birthday. It's an exceptional day. Exceptional day. Just one day being there and 